That's why they call it the art of medicine. It's not always black and white. There's a lot of gray. Some people, and there's a lot of evidence that always comes out in healthcare that says, you know what we were doing 10 years ago, shouldn't be done anymore. Right. And as a patient, as a consumer of healthcare, you need to make an informed decision and you're not educated on how to research that. Is the advice I'm being given accurate? Is it correct? You know, can I go and ask another opinion? Sure you can, you know, but unfortunately most people don't, don't know that. Well, yeah, Anthony, thanks for coming on. Uh, you did the, uh, you know, next to impossible this year and uh, raised a successful venture seed rounds in possibly the worst uh, venture market since the dot com crash. So uh, first of all, congrats and uh, really excited to talk about Senate Health. It's a company, obviously, you know, I'm uh, part of the advisory board. So it's a company I'm, you know, particularly uh, excited about and uh, love your passion and your ideas for it and and really uh, excited to have you on this show to talk more about what you're doing with Senate Health. Awesome. No, yeah. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, for first of all, having us, uh, having me on the show here. Uh, I'm a big fan and a subscriber. I really learn a lot every time I listen in. So uh, thanks for uh, having me on the show. Um, it certainly uh, was an exciting time, uh, but also very humbling that people believe in what we're doing uh, enough to commit uh, capital and uh, raise our first round uh, at Senna. So uh, we're excited to start off the year strong here. And um, yeah, no, thanks again for having us. I think you guys, though, I mean, I, let's dive into Senna here and what Senna does. But uh, just to kind of preface that, I think Senna is really exciting because, you know, you guys are at the beginning of a space. We just got the... Uh, Choose Home Healthcare Act passed. Uh, what was that? A couple months ago, and that's been in the works for a few years. So you know, and then the pandemic kind of kicked off this whole, uh, you know, uh, space where you know this whole kind of model of payers, you know, insurance companies, health insurance companies paying for hospitals to service patients in their homes, and you know, we all know that it's more. Uh, uh, you know, comfortable and, you know, less stressful to be, you know, in your own home than in a hospital waiting room or in a hospital bed. Uh, so there, there's a clear, you know, uh, value to the patient. But, you know, of course, the, the cost is a lot less when you don't have a whole building and electricity and all this expensive medical equipment and, you know, lots of uh, extra administrative overhead. It's just kind of a win, win, win all around. So now that, you know, COVID kind of kicked off the uh, change in regulations in this space, and now we're starting to see the, you know, the actual legislation being written to uh, enact like what the future of healthcare looks like. Uh, did I miss anything important? And, uh, <laughs> you know, let's, I'd love to hear just kind of from you diving right into what Senna is. Yeah, no. Uh, so before I go into Senna, uh, you covered quite a bit there about healthcare in general and what's happening in healthcare. One thing everyone knows is that the way healthcare is today is not sustainable. The status quo of doing the way doing things the way we've done the last five years, ten years is really not sustainable. Both from an economic perspective as a country where a large portion of the government spending is on healthcare and continues to rise every single year. And also if you own your own business, if you run your own company, uh, one of your biggest 
line items is your healthcare expense. And that just keeps going up and up and up. Um, so with that environment uh, that's not sustainable and a pandemic that pretty much told everyone stay in your home unless you're super sick and dying, then you can come to the hospital or even go see your doctor initially. Um, there's really been a shift here, Brian, to decentralize healthcare and bring healthcare to people, to patients where they are, whether they're at home, whether they're at work, um, and really flipping the narrative, right? Uh, people were always used to, oh my God, I'm not feeling well, let me go to the doctor's office, or let me go to the urgent care, or let me go to the ER and get admitted to the hospital. And um, now it's really flipped where, you know what, let's bring these services to people in their homes, to their workplace, just like we do every other service. I mean, I can get, you know, food delivered to my home, I can get groceries delivered, I can get a car delivered, you know, to wherever I am, not just my home, my work. So with the technology um, that's available today and continues to advance, it's become seamless as ever. Um, and that's what's changed. This model of care, whether it's hospital at home, doing house calls, I mean, gosh, for centuries, doctors have always gone to people's homes. And it was my one of my favorite rotations as a medical student uh, in Philly to go to South Philly and uh, do clinical rotations with Dr. Anthony Leone, this 81-year-old South Philly doctor, and knock, <laughs> knock door to door, literally with his bag of medicines and treat people in, in South Philly. Uh, now, don't get me wrong, eating like five lunches and having all this dessert from, you know, uh, the, the elderly patients in their home was also a plus, but house calls has always been a staple in medicine. It's just changed over the last few decades because we've built these beautiful hospitals and these beautiful facilities where we want people to come to us. And yeah, sure. It's more efficient in certain ways, but in a lot of ways, it's also not as efficient because you can, um, catch an illness, right? If you're if you're not feeling well and you want to go to a doctor's office and you sit in a waiting room with 20 other sick people there coughing and not feeling well, you could potentially catch something if it can be handled virtually, right? Or if you can go and meet the patient where they are, similarly in a hospital setting. And there's um, like, there's pros and cons. Like if you're in a construction accident and you're bleeding out and you don't know what the damage is and you need to get triaged and you need like specialists to come in like real fast and you don't know who you're going to need and what, you know, what the extent of the injury is like that how I mean, it makes sense you don't want that treated at the house but uh you know if you have you know I, I know there's a bunch of different diagnoses that senna can treat but let's take like dehydration for example that's a pretty good one that you don't need to be in a hospital for that that's exactly right so let me preface what i'm saying by there's always going to be a need for hospitals emergency rooms operating rooms we will always have a need but about half of what shows up in emergency rooms, Brian, can potentially be treated in the outpatient setting, right? The, the problem there is just access. People and patients don't have access to care, whether it's getting in with your doctor or being able to reach someone. And in addition to that, it's being educated and well-informed on, do I really need to go to the ER? Do I need to go uh, uh, to the urgent care. So a lot of that can be screened beforehand so that the person, the patient can make an informed decision, right? So there's been all this change uh, that's happened in healthcare. 
And it, it truly is a momentum, right? There's a ED to home. For example, a huge article came up yesterday. This, this big national player wants to bring the emergency room to the home. We're bringing hospitals to the home. So yes, you're, you're really sick people that need surgery, that, uh, that are bleeding, hemorrhaging. You need the ICUs, you need operating rooms uh, to, to care for them. So a lot of people say that the future hospital is going to be an emergency room, it's going to be an operating room and an intensive care unit for really sick people. Otherwise, most of what gets cared for in a hospital and emergency room can be cared for in the home which can be up to 30 to 40% of what gets seen in a hospital or 50% of what gets seen in an emergency room. Wow. So that's a, that's a huge shift, right? So at Senna, yeah, there are things that what we can treat in the home, such as uh, if, if you've been having you know diarrhea, not feeling well, you're severely dehydrated, um, and you need to get some uh, fluids and minerals. I'm, I'm, I'm trying, Brian, not to go put my doctor hat on and keep it in layman's terms because I figured you probably don't have a lot of doctors or medical folks listening in. There's um, a few, but not many. <laughs> <laughs> we ought to fix that. So we'll, we'll get the word out. Um, you know, what's funny, though. This is the second uh, the second guest I've had. I had the CEO, Artie, of Seekster. Uh, and the opening line of that episode was talking about how um, – the uh i forget the act but it's like the the data portability act uh interoperability act that one uh uh that was like a law that went into place that legislated what his business does yeah and now like the same thing with you kind of like this the same deal like there's legislation going in place that you know requires what your business does so it's just interesting it's it's an it's an awesome story to say hey my business is like the law you know you have to do it <laughs> so we are right there. Uh, so you mentioned the Home Care Act, but also in the omnibus bill that passed at the end of 2020, right before the holidays, there was actually a law in there mandating hospital at home to be extended for two more years, right? Mm. Past the public health emergency. So what we do in doing hospital at home is now law. So insurances, uh, Medicare, they have to pay for this type of service in the home. So yeah, healthcare is one of the most regulated industry uh, in the country, you know, just like aviation and other industries. But uh, yeah, now it's basically law that we, you know, health systems, healthcare, hospitals uh, can provide this type of high acuity care in the home. What's so interesting to me, like, you know, I come from the tech world. So what you see in tech is when new innovations happen, happen, you don't really hear about them. Companies build them and do them because they do them fast. And then they come out and then the news cycle hits yeah. after the innovation happens. But this like hospital at home thing, it's barely happening. There's, you know, there's a, there's like what a couple platforms, you know, there's Senna Health and like one or two others that's right. out there. Uh, so there's basically nobody that's, you know, eating a big chunk of this market yet. Hospitals are just starting to talk about how they roll this out. Yeah. But it's in all the news cycles, like all the all the healthcare publications and everyone's talking about it. And it's like the big topic in the news cycle. But basically nothing's happens in the industry except for very small, you know, incremental tiny steps so far. Yeah, I mean, look, it's it's an attention grabbing uh, topic, right? You put hospital at home or ED to home and it grabs people's attention. Um, look, healthcare is infamous, Brian, for being a late adopter. Like there are, you know, on that curve of there's late adopters. Like put healthcare 17 years behind that last late adopter when it comes 
to an industry. And actually, there's been studies around that. For something to become a medication, let's say a new pill comes out, a new treatment comes out, it takes about 17 years for that treatment to become standard of care. And there's a lot of reasons for that, right? You have to be conservative. We're dealing with people's lives here before you can prescribe a pill. There are side effects. So there's a lot of things, but it's ingrained in our culture as physicians, as nurses, as healthcare administrators to be not as aggressive. And in turn, that becomes less innovative, right? But we're at a point now where what we're doing is not sustainable from a financial perspective, from a quality of care perspective. I mean, we just got hit by a pandemic that froze the country and froze the world. Like we should be prepared for things like that. We have the technology. Um, you, look, you know, I'm a tech geek, right? I love to incorporate technology into everything I do. And I've been doing it throughout my career in, in healthcare. Um, I essentially was doing hospital at home for my parents, but just never knew it. I was like, had my own little command center and putting in IVs and giving them meds at home uh, for years. Um, just to avoid the ER and hospital, you know, they're, they're elderly themselves. But, um, you know, we describe ourselves as Senna as technology-enabled services. We use the technology to make the person, the patient, the customer's life easier and to make our team members at Senna and our partners' lives easier. And it's it's really amazing how affordable, one, the technology has gone to be ubiquitous, right, in healthcare. So affordability is key. But then it's just evolving, Brian, at such a fast pace. Like a device comes out a couple months later, you have some advanced more technology coming out. So I, I think we're in a super exciting time to offer technology-enabled services in healthcare and catch up with other industries, basically. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, awesome. And uh, it's the testament that I, I saw here with Senna. It's like there's so many, you know, we're in this apocalypse for venture capital markets right now and there's companies just like begging you know to get around closed right now they're going to so many investors trying to get you know anything they can to keep their next uh you know their next runway going and uh you know senna had a whole line of investors lined up ready to go and uh you know you guys were trying to figure out which ones to pick and you know ultimately went with a really strategic choice because of uh you know a partnership that's coming out of it i won't get into any details unless you want to share them. But, uh, you know, it was really uh, awesome to see that, like see how many options you had, how strategic you could be with, you know, choosing the right money, choosing strategic money and, uh, you know, getting ready to really scale up and build an awesome product on top of what you've already done in more of a, you know, a medium tech uh, way at this point. Yeah. Yeah, no, no. Thank you, Brian. Um, when me and my two partners started Senna, and you were there from day one, I honestly can't thank you enough for your advice and, and your expertise and, and believing in us and what we wanted to do from day one. When we started Senna, we had two goals in mind. One is to del deliver exceptional value and service to the customer in the home, which is the patient, right? Um, and then number two is to build a culture and team that was strictly focused on that value delivery for the customer. Now, look, when you take people's money early on, it kind of changes the dynamics. Well, when you take people's money anytime, it changes the dynamics. So we were very fortunate to put our own money uh, into the company and not have to worry about those dynamics, right? So we were hyper-focused on delivering value to the customer and then building a great culture in our company in order to deliver that value. So we did that, you know, um, for a year or two, 
And um, when we were ready, it just has to feel right to go out and, and get funding. Um, this is a hot space. You're right. Like every other article now in healthcare is how, how do we, the, the home is the last frontier. How do we get more services into the home? Like you see articles like that, right? It's so funny. Um, I'm sorry to cut no, no, you off good. here. It's, it's funny that it's like the last frontier, but it was the original frontier. That's right. <laughs> Everything comes back full circle. It was the, it was the OG for sure. <laughs> um, so yeah, when we decided to go out, we, we really wanted to take, I guess, smart money, you know, if if you call it that, where we wanted a strategic partner. So looking at our existing customers, looking at our existing partners, uh, we were very fortunate uh to have uh and I can mention it's all we just put out the press release today, and there was an article in the Philadelphia Business Journal as well. Uh Regal Healthcare out of New York. Uh it was founded by Dr. David Kim. Uh, who is an emergency room physician and started uh, one of the largest urgent care centers in New York City uh, uh, decades ago, right? So there were no urgent cares. If you look at 10, 15 years ago, they, they weren't as popular as they are now. So he was an emergency room dog. Everything came to the hospital, came to the ER. So he was, he had the foresight and and the, um, I guess the guts, you know, to go out and, 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 invest in urgent care centers and open them up. So I was really, uh, it was really appealing to have someone like that who took that risk decades ago, build something amazing. And then eventually he exited and uh, formed his private equity firm with the same mantra and intent to invest in similar people in healthcare. So he's the principal at Regal Healthcare out of New York and just an amazing team. He put an awesome team together and I'll be honest, Brian, like we were talking to them for over a year because I hesitated. <laughs> you know, us in the well, team. You had like, you know, I, I, you had four or five options that were, okay. you know, pretty damn good options. Like, the, like you, you know, you probably didn't tell me about the bad options, but, you know, <laughs> the, the good ones, you were like, you had a really hard decision to make as far as, you know, who to choose as your, uh, you know, your first capital partner. Yeah, yeah. And in this environment, too, that that added to it, you know, so yeah, we, we were very fortunate. But yeah, so Dr. David Kim and his team at Regal, they're really just beyond giving us money. They've already helped us introduce us to large customers, uh, giving us advice. And uh, they're just down to earth, like minded people. And that was very important. I mean, we, we like dated for a while, you know, we, we went out to dinner, we met him a couple times. They have their office right by Penn Station in New York, Madison Square Garden. So I take the train up from Philly, do some work on the train, met with them a few times. I'm not kidding, until we all felt comfortable and then did the deal right before Christmas. But I wanted to mention, um, so urgent care, just talking about them, where we are in hospital at home now, we're very much early on where urgent care was. So like urgent care started, it took them about 10 years to get to where now you can find one in every corner. That's where hospital at home and we call it healing at home because there's so much you can do in the home is about maybe, you know, seven to 10 years to where urgent care. So we'll get there eventually. But that's the thing with healthcare. Everything takes time. Another example is uh, surgical centers. So in the 70s, for example, all surgeries used to be done in the hospital, right? You needed a knee surgery, a shoulder surgery, any basics. You had to go to the hospital and get it done. In the mid 70s, they came up with these ambulatory surgical centers where, look, you're having shoulder surgery. It's not a major surgery. It's a young, healthy person or knee surgery, for example. You can do it outside the wall of the hospital. 
So it took about five to seven years for even insurances to start paying for these services and the government, Medicare, Medicaid, to start approving these types of services. And then now there are many surgeries, Brian, that you're not even allowed to do in the hospital. It has to be done in, in ambulatory surgical centers. So you can it's see- It's interesting, like uh, insurance, like the payers are kind of, uh, I, I don't know the right word to use. I don't know if like bully is the right word to use, but they kind of like set the rules. <laughs> I would not say that, Brian, because they are our friends and we we, we work with uh, with insurances and payers. Um, look, I, I get it. They have to run their operations and business, too. And, yeah, they do dictate the rules, right? Like what gets paid, what doesn't get paid for, what gets denied. But also a lot of it comes from Medicare, right? Our lar- The largest insurance company in our country is Medicare, right? Because. Um, when you look at a size of population. So a lot of times things start with Medicare. So when Medicare pays for it, then all the insurances also start paying for it. So just as, like I said earlier, uh, Medicare is now paying for hospital at home. And there's a law saying for the next two years, you have to pay for it. But all the insurances are already catching up. Like they're, they're also paying for the same service. But yeah, insurances... Uh, do dictate, uh, just like any business, what they spend on and what they don't. Uh, you need approvals for certain processes and procedures. Um, but yeah, it's, talk it's about like the 17 year lag, though. If there, if it takes seven years for something to get paid for by the insurance, that's just like that's when kind of day zero starts for implementing it now. Like now that it can be reimbursed, now you know, now you have to create the you know, create the medical devices, create, you know, the drugs, create the trainings, you know, train the doctors, you know, explain to them why this is important and what the innovation is here, and then roll it out to entire teams and then get the patients to trust the process. And so that's, you know, so if it takes seven years to even just like start to happen, then it's probably another decade or more before it actually is happening at any real scale. So one huge difference today, right, in 2023, January 2023, what's different today is we went through a pandemic. Some would still say we're still in, we're still in a pandemic. I think the pandemic certainly opened up a lot of eyes to things, accelerated a lot of things, not just in healthcare, but let's just stick to healthcare. It did accelerate, change the minds of patients, families, where now telemedicine I used Brian, I used to beg, you know, I used to work at a at a large healthcare system with hundreds of doctors I used to oversee. I would beg them to put telemedicine into their schedule and say, can you give me half a day? Like, why do we need a patient to come into the to your office and review labs? Literally just have a call with them. Like, you know, you know the patient, it's a follow-up patient. Don't have them skip work, take time off of work, being away from their family. Isn't that the only way you get paid for it, though? Like if you if you don't have the patient walk into your office, then so you have to like disrupt their day just so that you can bill that 15 minutes. But really, it's like all the other stuff that went up to that 15 minutes. That is the real value, not that real 15 minutes. So exactly. So reimbursement does influence this. Um, But look, if I've done it where I've gone to the payers with an innovative program and say, hey, can we split the cost here? And let's see if this works, right? You benefit, we benefit, win-win for everyone, but most importantly, the patient benefits, right? So, but I was just saying, like, I was begging them to do telehealth visits for simple things before the pandemic. 
Now I have some of my physician colleagues that all they do is telemedicine, right? If, if, if you're not, you don't have to do surgery, you're not, you're getting an opinion from a doctor, a lot of it can be done virtual. Now, certainly there's limitation, but if you need to see the patient, then you schedule an office visit. So yeah. just to give you an example, I think- I've personally been doing a lot on Zoom yeah. and Microsoft yeah. Teams. Exactly. But a lot of the electronic medical records even have telehealth built into their platform. Right. So you log on the app, you click on the app and then it pop, your doctor pops up on there. Um, but, yeah, I think the pandemic, just to your initial question, I think the pandemic has changed a lot of you. So I'm hoping it's not seven years. Like I'll take 10 years. <laughs> <laughs> 10 years for this to be like commonplace, you're saying. Everywhere. Yeah, just say, it okay. does seem like it's the fastest moving change. You know, uh, you've been, you know, obviously uh you know ex- a lot more experienced in the healthcare space than than I am but uh you know I think this is as far as I can tell is the fastest moving change I've ever seen in in healthcare without a doubt without a doubt and I think two things one is finances because what we're doing is not sustainable right and I think two people right whether you're a patient you're a doctor we're more open to technology that's one thing i mean working from home you know, having family meetings on Zoom, like people, the pandemic forced us. Some say maybe pushed us like five years ahead where something now is, is becoming, becoming the norm. Um, so no, I, I, I hear you, but uh, look, healthcare has always been conservative and I, I don't think it's going to be, you know, it'll well, it's change. a good thing. You don't, you don't want to be, uh, you don't want to go into your, your doctor's appointment and ha- hear the doc say, uh, oh, hey, uh, Anthony, I'm going to try this new thing I just saw on YouTube last night. Let me see, let, let me know how it works out for you. <laughs> You'd be surprised. People do that stuff. Like, <laughs> oh, I Google this and I bought it online. And I'm like, what? Yeah, it was shipped over from some random country. <laughs> like, no, that is, <laughs> that does happen, Brian. <laughs> Oh man. That's not innovation, by the way. <laughs> but uh yeah, that that's funny. Um well not funny, but uh funny to joke about it, I guess. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People have to be informed. People really have to be informed. And that's why actually one of the service lines that came out of Senna, and it wasn't our intent, right? So for Senna, we partner up with large medical groups, hospitals, health systems payers, home care companies, really anyone looking to get into the the at-home care space, right? They want to deliver their service. If you have a cancer doctor that wants to deliver some of their services in the home, you have a heart doctor, a cardiologist, you have a hospital, even primary care and wellness. What we, what we offer is we help you develop your strategy because you can't go in blindly, right? Just like any program, you have to organize it. You have to make sure financially, operationally, and clinically, you have a strategy. So after we help them deliver a strategy, then we set up their own unique program. And this is their program, right? We're white labeled, we're in the background. And then third is we go live. So we have the technology, we have the people and the process and a 24-7 command center that enables them to deliver on that service in the home, right? So we can deliver and care for really sick people called hospital at home. But we can also do sniff at home, which is like rehab in the home. We can do advanced primary care in the home, cancer care in the home, you name it, right? Um, what's evolved from that, Brian, is now we had some of our partners say, look, we're doing such a great job with our patients. Can you help us with our employees? Because they're using the ER, 
they don't have doctors, they're not knowledgeable about healthcare, which on average, by the way, there's been studies about this, the average patient consumes healthcare at about a, the comprehension of a fifth grade level, right? When you when you compare it to other things. So uh, unfortunately, we tend to complicate things in healthcare. So you have to keep it very simple. You have to educate the patients and their family members. So what we're doing now is actually also one of our services that just emerged is we can help businesses offer their employees care navigation for their employees so they can make an informed decision, right? Do I really need to go out to, to the ER right now? Do I, you know, can a telemedicine visit help me? Um, you know, I'm looking for a specialist, like a fertility specialist. Where do I turn to? This is what my insurance plans offers. So we're helping them make an informed decision. So really what we're doing here is enabling everything from hospital level care in the home to even wellness and prevention for employees who, look, they're working at home now. A lot of people are working from home. So essentially work at home, the, the lines have been blurred, right? So um, is Senna going to help, uh, help on uh, how to, uh, you know, find the right specialist or to uh, like understand what your coverage allows for? So exactly. So again, going back to that three-step process, first we do a feasibility strategy, right? So if let's say an employer, we get their data and say, oh my God, 90%, literally by 90% of your patients don't even have a family doctor. Like if they get sick, they just go to the ER. So we say, okay, let's develop a strategy where we can educate people on how to find a doctor. Uh, maybe they're looking for, you know, a female or a, a male or someone that specializes in men's health or a particular. So we help them make an informed decision. Then we understand their benefits plan because every business has a different benefits plan, right? And then we help them go live. We are available 24-7, 365. That, that's what we offer because people don't get sick Monday to Friday, nine to five, right? So we're 24 seven, 365. We do it at a low cost because you have to reduce the cost of services in healthcare. And we help companies, hospitals, whoever our partner is get there faster, right? Because they don't have to invest all these resources into building a command center and building all these resources that we've done for a few years now already and have learned and have the scars to prove it. So we're we're ready to go. I mean, that's really powerful. Like that, it's like concierge service that, uh, you know, for uh, employees that are on, you know, like a group plan or a self-insured plan or something, having that access to just even questions about, you know, I have this problem. I don't know who to see it. I don't know what's going to be covered. I want to know what the costs are going to be and how do and I budget? going to pay out of pocket. Right. Exactly. Yeah. So we can say, okay, you go to this doctor and this is their background. This is what your out-of-pocket is. Or you go to this this doctor and you have no out-of-pocket and here's their background. It's your decision. But Brian, I want to make it because I get this all the time. It's one of my pet peeves. It's like, oh, this is concierge, like white glove service. And my response to that is, no, this is what how we should deliver care because people don't know health care, right? People mm -hmm. don't know how to consume health care. So people have to make an informed decision of how to consume healthcare. We we've just been in this like, you know, hamster wheel of, oh my, let's go to the hospital, go to the ER, go find a doctor. Well, how do I do that? Like you said, I have a, I have something I need help with. Where do I go? You can't go search online and Google. <laughs> there are a lot of resources, but you want a human being on the other line helping you, 
right? Like we're, we're in the healthcare, but we're in the people business. So you use technology, you use people to build that trust and say, hey, Brian, here are your options. And this way your health plan covers now make a decision, right? And how many easy. surgeries and procedures get done that don't need to be just because somebody goes to a specialist and says like the right sequence of symptoms and then the specialist says, oh, you have X, Y, Z and then prescribes a procedure and, you know, it's, uh, yeah, I mean, so that, there's got to be stats some, on that, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. So we've, you know, kind of like a second opinion, right? So some people don't even know like that's an option, Right. There's a lot of, that's why they call it the art of medicine. It's not always black and white. There's a lot of gray. Some people, and there's a lot of evidence that always comes out in healthcare that says, you know what we were doing 10 years ago, shouldn't be done anymore. Right. And as a patient, as a consumer of healthcare, you need to make an informed decision and you're not educated on how to research that is the advice I'm being given accurate. Is it correct? You know, can I go and ask another opinion sure you can you know but unfortunately most people don't don't know that yeah interesting yeah. that's awesome I, I love what uh i love what sen is doing uh and it's uh i i can imagine you know being in in that position like having an app or having just even someone i can email that can answer questions quickly and gets back quickly and then you know if i have a question for the doctor that's you know a quick, you know, question, being able to get that routed to a doctor and just get, you know, get an answer without having to, you know, go in somewhere in person and, and, uh, you know, go through the whole process. Uh, that's, you know, such a needed, you know, I, I, I like that you, that's kind of like I, what is called concierge medicine now, but I like how you're seeing that as what should just be the standard. Yeah, that's exactly right. That's how we should, because of the way healthcare is set up today. And unfortunately, I spent my whole career as a physician, as a healthcare administrator, just really trying to eliminate those silos. There's a lot of silos in healthcare. The family doctor doesn't talk to the specialist, who doesn't talk to the ER, who doesn't talk to the therapist. Even within a hospital, Brian, like the emergency room and and the, you know, they call them the hospitalist, the inpatient doctors or the surgeon. Like sometimes there can be beef between them where they're like, this is not my problem. You handle it. And look, that happens in a lot of organizations. But we we forget and lose sight of that person, that patient in front of you. Like, how, how does that make them feel that I can't get all of a doctor? No one knows what the hell's going on. Uh, they tell me to go on an app and download an app. Like, you know, my mother was in a medical practice and, you know, she's she's elderly and they told her, well, you can't reach the practice anymore. Now you have to go through our app, our patient portal app. I mean, my mom doesn't even like, I've got her like 10 smartphones, Brian, and she refuses to use them, but she's not going to go through an app. She wants to pick up the phone and, and talk to you, yeah. right? Having so, options. Yeah, I, I love technology and app has a purpose. Like, yeah, mom, I can help you get your labs from there. But you have a question. You got to talk to someone, you know? Um, and that's why I always say we're technology enabled services. And I'm super excited about the future. Look, when you incorporate AI and machine learning, uh, I was just talking with a company today that focuses on end of life care, because um, a lot of that, unfortunately, over half of end of life in our country, people die in the hospitals. When you ask people, where would you prefer to die? They want to be in their homes with their loved ones. Um, and, and pass away peacefully where they want. But unfortunately, most people in our country, 
end up getting tubes down their throat and, and needles jabbed in them. And, and it's not a good, but look, I've worked in ICUs for a lot of my career. It's needed if you're really sick, you're in a car accident, you're, you're bleeding. But if you're, you know, in your late nineties, your end of life, like you want to be with your family and not have needles and, and things jabbed into you, you know? Yeah. So I'm working with them and they have a, a predictive analytics tool where you put in the patient's information and it can actually help predict like how much more time they have to live. And they're really getting close to actually predicting within, uh, you know, statistical significance because they, you know, they just need more and more data to put in their um, uh, algorithm. So I'm super excited, man, about data and using data to help people, you know, imagine being IC and say, look, you know, Mr. So-and-so, really we're using predictive analysis saying you maybe have about three weeks here to live, you know? Um, do you really want to spend it here with all these random strange people? Or do you want to be in your home with your loved ones, with your pets? Um, and let's talk about end of life. You know, what would you like done when that happens? And um, yeah. that kind of goes back to the original thing. It not only, you know, first and foremost improves the patient experience and the quality of life uh, in that case, you know, the quality of end of life, but uh it also saves, you know, resources and time and money that the, you know, the healthcare system needs to invest on, you know, taking care of someone that honestly that care might not be the best, you know, the best use of resources or the best experience for the patient to begin with. Without a doubt, Brian. And that that's what frustrates me and has frustrated me quite a bit in my career because unfortunately most programs um, you know, clinical programs or the way we deliver care follows the money, just like a lot of things, a lot of business, right? You follow the money. Oh, I get paid for this. I'm going to do more of this. I do more procedures. I get paid more. Um, I meet my margins, right? But what we're saying, here, it, it takes a lot of guts and forward thinking and innovation, which is happening really in pockets around, around our country and around the world to say, look, this is a win-win situation. This is the right thing to do for patients and their families. And it's going to save you a lot of money too and save the system a lot of money. So one of my mentors, when, when I was in training, um, I'll give him a shout out. Dr. Condolucci always told me, he said, look, Anthony, if you do what's right for the patient, the finances always work out, right? And I, and I took that to heart and try to do that with everything I do in career. And that's why first and foremost is to do the right thing for patients, for their families, provide value as a business, as Senna, we want to create tremendous value for our customers, build trust, and then the finances always follow. It might be hard. It's going to take some effort to figure it out, but you got to put in that effort and not accept the status quo. I think we need to be super efficient, though. There's a big wave of uh, you know boomers that will be needing a lot of care over the next few decades. And I'm interested. So that's like the 10 to 25-ish year forecast, uh, roughly. But then there's like a wave after that where there's a lull, I think, in the population. So I'm, I'm like curious, what's your like short, medium, and like super long-term predictions for the healthcare industry? Wow. So that's a heavily loaded question there, Brian. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think there's going to be a lot of change for sure. Um, you mentioned, you know, the, the baby boomers and aging every day in our country, 10,000 people in the U S turn 65. So you're right. There's going to be a huge demand and not enough supply. 
just like people doing this advanced care in the home, whether it's hospital home, like we're all kind of talking to each other, supporting each other because there's not enough people doing it. And there's going to be way more people that want the service in the future, whether it's five years, 10 years or 20 years, like you mentioned, and just and not enough people doing it. So there's going to be a rush towards building something quickly. And that is not a good way to do things. You got to learn because there's going to be mistakes made. You got to learn from them. You got to iterate and improve and change. So um, I think technology is going to go deeper and deeper into healthcare, even though as an industry, we've been resistant to tech and, and innovation. There's been pockets of it. So I think there's, and, and the boomers, a lot of them will be more used to tech, right? A lot of them have smartphones that they're, they're used to now through a pandemic, you know, FaceTiming and, you know, whatever, videoing uh, people. So I think technology will be incorporated more into, into what we do. And then we have to find a solution to helping the aging population at a lower cost because the way healthcare is adding cost year after year, it's unsustainable for the government, for our country, and for simple businesses, right? They just want to run a business and, and deliver on services. So I'm not avoiding your question, Brian, but I'm just, you know, a short answer for me would be definitely in 10, 20 years, there'll be more technology enabled uh, uh, services. Doctors will be making more informed decision using AI, machine learning, taking a lot, some of that great art of medicine out where now we can truly have evidence-based care at the bedside in the palm of our hands. Um, I know I looked at the, uh, what is it? Chat G, uh, GTP thing GPT, and, yeah. GPT and, and the AI. I mean, that's crazy. What Some of the things that can be done there. And that's just what's uh, public. Imagine what like Google DeepMind and some of these other things are doing or what, you know, Sam Altman has behind the curtain that he hasn't showed us yet at OpenAI. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So I'm, I'm super excited man, to see where that takes us. So that look, one, as a doctor, I can make an informed decision to what to recommend and treat. And then also the patient can make an informed decision and say, you know what, I don't want this treatment, right? Or Has I it been talked about, though, in healthcare? Uh, I've heard this. I don't remember where I heard it, but uh, there's like this boomer wave. And then after the boomer wave, I think like the innovation leading up and through that boomer wave is going to be incredible. So that's like a 30 year run, like a 20, 30 year run for healthcare. Yeah. But when the population of when the dying population cuts down by like, I don't know, 50 or, you know, 40, 50% from the boomer wave uh, and you've reached peak efficiency and like maximum headcount in the healthcare space at that time to care for that population. And then that, you know, declines over, so we're going out to what, you know, it's like in the 2050s, 2060s, but, you know, could there be like a healthcare recession or of some kinds, you know, going out that far? So I, I hope I'm around and, and watching this video. Uh, <laughs> then That would be really cool to do that. Uh, I'm going to put a reminder in my calendar. <laughs> but look, we live in a global society, Brian, as a population around the world. Um, there's going to be more and more people. So I hear what you're saying, like there's going to be a dip in the population in the US. I mean, time will certainly tell. But we live in a global society where I think we can even deliver on some of these technology services around the world. I think that's one thing people still respect around the world is US healthcare for really sick people, because we invest in research and development for, you know, cancer treatments and, and really innovative medications and things like that. 
So I personally think uh, healthcare is a global problem. Um, that's where the name Senna comes from, actually. It's an acronym for all the continents in the world. Um, I th- it's a oh, global- that's cool. I didn't know that. Oh, really? I, I told you that. <laughs> yeah, I, I, uh, yeah, yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah. But so, but to that point you're making, so I went to a wedding one time in uh, in Peru. It was a, a wealthy family's wedding. And uh, I met a lot of uh, very wealthy uh, Latin American people. And one of the people I met was the daughter uh, and son-in-law of the president of Ecuador at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh, I think their son was born with um, like half a heart or something. And they sought out the best children's healthcare, the best pediatric uh, surgeons to deal with that heart condition. And they ended up at CHOP and mm-hmm. lived in Rittenhouse for two years while he went through like 50 surgeries or something. We don't realize that CHOP is the number one children's hospital in the world, second to none. Also, Will's Eye. Will's Eye was the eye, the eye hospital right on, uh, it's right on Chestnut. It's the number one eye hospital in the world. We have a there's a big medical tourism industry, actually, companies that focus on bringing people from other countries to the U.S. Now, certainly you have to be affluent and be able to afford it. Um, unfortunately, it's not for the masses and a lot of people can't even get a visa, uh, you know, to come to the U.S., but that's one thing that's indisputable as far as the, you know, the the, the caliber of care that we can deliver uh, for really rare things. Like we come second to none. Johns Hopkins uh, in, you know, Maryland, D.C. area, like they're the number one health system in the world for a reason. People come here, they donate to, to these institutions. But yeah, in Philly, we're very lucky to have CHOP and we, we kind of forget that. But yeah, CHOP is the number one health system in the world where even doctors want to come and practice at child because they're so good. Yeah. I knew it was really good. I didn't know it was literally the number one in the world. That's really, uh, I can see it out my window from my apartment. That's uh, (laughs) pretty crazy. (laughs) But then that's a small minority, right. Of healthcare in our country, right. Those really sick, rare diseases, procedures, most, the majority of healthcare, like 99% of, of healthcare is, I hate to call it bread and butter, but as an organization, like you see a lot of diabetes, you see a lot of congestive heart failure, pneumonia, you know, infections, right? Like those are more common things and that's where we need to improve on. And that's not like, you know, the care for that is just reactive care. You know, there's, uh, there's a whole other crisis, I think there that has to do with, you know, heavily processed foods and sugar intakes and, you know, just diet and consumption habits, uh, you know, in Western society. And like, that's like a a whole other problem, I think, to like tackle that. That's a whole other episode, Brian. I probably can come on. We can do an episode. We can do an episode on that. But yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, and there's a lot of reasons for that, right? Where's, where's the money going? Our education system, financially, what's affordable, what's not affordable, you know, so no, you're you're 100% right. Um, when you look at actually things that impact our health as a country, and there's been research around this, um, 80% of what impacts our health in general, and this is under population health studies, 80% is actually from our environment and choices that we make, right? Food, smoking, uh, lifestyle choices, 
um, uh, you know, mental health choices, wellness, and only 20%, Brian, of what me as a doctor, what we do only 20 impacts 20% of a person's health, right? So 80% is from things that doctors and health systems do not do. So there's a lot, that's a heavy loaded question you just asked, because, you know, I did a lot of pop health, and I still do in my career. But when you look at a population, um, most of it is, you know, lifestyle choices, food, wellness, you know, exercise, you're right, or social determinants of health. I think we, uh, I think we just have to remember, it's easy to ask the question, it's hard to figure out the solution. And then once you have the solution, it's even harder to make it an effective, you know, it, to effectively implement it. Yeah, very true. That's very true. But uh, yeah, cool. This was a good episode. Anything else you want to leave on, like in terms of plug in Senate Health or next steps? You know where where it's going in twenty twenty three. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate it. Um, we're starting out the year strong. You know, knock on wood. Very very blessed and very fortunate there. Uh, we raised our round. We're building our team. We're expanding our technology. So our goal is to partner up with medical groups, hospitals, health systems, payers, home care, and now even businesses that are looking to deliver care in the home, meeting patients, employees, where they are. Um, we can do that using our technology, using our, our people and building trust uh, with them. So no, we're, we're super excited. And um, I really want to thank you, Brian. Honestly, you've, you've helped us out from, from day one when we came to you with this crazy idea, which a lot of people would have turned down, but you were very supportive. I remember the first whiteboard session in your office around the tech. You were, you know, you, you taught us what like lucid charts is and not to plug them, but you know, you taught us how to, how to go through the process. I just want to thank you, man. Like you've been a great supporter. And um, I feel very fortunate to have you support us and be on the team. So I really want to thank you. Yeah, I'm happy to, uh, you know, be along for the ride at the, you know, the advisor capacity. And, uh, you know, it really comes down to you guys doing it. I mean, there's so many people have ideas. I hear ideas all day long. They're, you know, a dime a dozen. But, uh, you know, taking the idea and running with it and doing it and making it happen, making it a business, getting a whole team around you and uh, getting customers and, you know, helping people, helping patients. That's, you know, the the real hard work. And uh, so, you know, right back at you. Congratulations for oh, all no, the all the success that you and Senna are having. No, thank you. We have a great team, Brian. And that's honestly what, you know, people ask us, what's your secret sauce? And we, ha we have a, a tremendous team. And we keep getting that from our clients, whether we're working in New York and Florida and Philly and California. Like we're very fortunate now to have clients different parts of the country. Um, that's our team. Our team really is committed, dedicated. We're founded on servant leadership principles. So I want to give a big shout out to the team because uh, I'm nothing without our whole team at Senna. So thank you for that, Brian. Cool. All right. Good episode. I'll catch you later, Anthony. All right, man. I'll talk to you. Thank you. Thanks See a lot. Ya.